Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to stop right there. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you. We have access to you. We even have the ability to, uh, to think about you, Lord, because in the beginning, you made it all. God, you made everything. You are the source of life. You are the source of us. You are the God of creation. And God, we long to know you. Many people in this world that'll say that you're not there or you can't be known. But Lord, because of this, because in the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth, you are there and you can be known. And I pray that we would encounter you today. Lord, teach us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a story of a young boy who one day goes to his father and says, Dad, where did I come from? The father is startled, a little taken off guard. His son is still young. He did not expect to be having the conversation about the birds and the bees at such a young age, but he mustered up the courage and in an age-appropriate way told him all that he could tell him about where he came from. And the boy politely listened to his father unfold and, and expound on the secrets of reproductive biology. And the father, having been started, taken off guard, he, he's, he's proud of himself. Can't believe Johnny on the spot was able to come and like drop knowledge on his kid, giving himself a little pat on the back until the kid shrugged, turned around and walked out and said, dad, that's weird. Jimmy said he's from Indiana. The boy is merely scratching the surface of his geographical origins. And although the answer the father gave him was true, it didn't fit his categories. It was significantly more profound of an answer than the question that he was asking. And so to the boy, it seemed irrelevant. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not what I'm asking. So the book of Genesis tells us where we come from. It gives us the origins of the world, the origins of humanity. But we're often like the boy, scratching the surface, asking wrong questions from wrong categories when God wants to give us something far more profound than we could think to ask. Now, there's a reason this happens. There's a reason that we often ask questions different than the biblical authors intended. There's a reason we get bogged down with questions that the Bible didn't intend for us to ask and doesn't plan to answer for us. And I know how it happened for me. I met Jesus when I was 19 years old. Actually, fun fact, uh, September 20th, which is Tuesday, is the 20-year anniversary of the day I met Jesus. I didn't know that, actually, until I started working here uh, and found the disc of the recording of the sermon that Pastor Britt was preaching, and I found out it's September 20th of 2002. That's amazing. Uh, grateful for that. But I was very young. I met Jesus, 
And at the time I was in college and I was a biology major. Before I went to Bible college, I was a biology major. I wanted to get my degree in biology. I wanted to get a master's in genetics. I wanted to be involved in cancer research. That's what I wanted to do. I loved science. I still, to this day, love the sciences. But because I met Jesus in that season of my life, in that context, the immediate conversations I began to have about Jesus was in a context where people were requiring me to explain the validity of my faith from a 21st century Western scientific worldview. And so the Bible became this tool for evangelism. It became this tool for apologetics instead of a tool for my relationship with God, instead of a tool for my worship, to stir up worship in my heart. And so Christianity quickly became for me, when I first met Jesus, about defending the faith rather than simply having faith. And so I justified myself by my ability to explain the Bible rather than the God of the Bible who saves me by a gift of his grace. And so I lived in questions that the text didn't intend for me to ask. Now, you don't need to be in a scientific field of study for this to happen. Our culture, until very recently, has believed that scientific knowledge is the most true uh, knowledge available to us. And everything else has kind of been secondary to that. Until very recently, we see a lot of instances where those things are being questioned. And so many people outside of the church, when they find out that you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, they want to know how can that possibly be since scientifically it would appear that the world is millions of years old and in schools, the theory of evolution is being taught as fact. That's what people outside of the church want to know. God created the heavens and the earth. How is that possible? Science, 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 science. And again, I love science, not throwing science under the bus, right? But because of that context, because of that culture that we've been raised in, then even people in the church, those are the first questions they ask. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, when? When was the, the, the heavens and the earth made? How long ago was it? Because these people are saying this, and I know other people that, that try to make sense of it by explaining it a different way, but, but when? And so we're asking the question, when, from a very self-centered perspective, right? How long ago from this moment where I live? Tell me where creation began in relationship to me. See how egocentric that is. It's, I want to know how it relates immediately to me. When the Bible tells us when it was made, in the beginning. It's creation-centric. It's theocentric. It's God-centric. It's, it's not trying to explain from 2022 how long ago it was. It tells us that at the very beginning, when there was nothing, God was there. And because of God, all things that are now exist. And it happened in the beginning. And so we want to know often when or how could God have used evolutionary processes to give us the diversity of species that exist in the world? These are the questions that we ask, oftentimes before we ask anything else of the text. But the problem is, is that's not the story the Bible is telling. The Bible's not telling that story. 
And asking those questions is imposing a modern framework onto an ancient story. It's forcing it to answer our questions before we'll even listen to what it has to say, what the text was intended to tell us. So we have to use the categories the Bible gives if we want to understand the story that the Bible tells. We know how to do this. We know how to read stories. We know how to experience stories. And my recommendation would be that we treat the Bible similarly, that at face value, we sit in the story. We learn what the story wants to tell us. We're allowed to ask questions of the text. That's fine. It's not wrong. But we need to allow the story to tell us what to do. And we know how to do this with other stories. Take Star Wars. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. That's how it begins. It's on the screen. And then the first scene, you immediately find out that space travel is possible. Laser blasters are a thing. And futuristic tech exists that we don't have now. And we're fine with it. We don't pause it and go, well, how long ago was it? How far away is that galaxy? And how did human beings of an ancient civilization on an ancient planet get tech that we don't even have now? I'm shutting it off. No, we know how to interpret science fiction. We know to let the story tell us what we need to know. And we allow ourselves to be immersed into the story. If we want to recapture our awe for God and our awe in what he has done in creation, we need to stop looking at it like it's a textbook and start looking at it like it's a story. We need to stop looking at it through the lens of skeptics to lead us in our understanding and allow the author to give us what they want us to understand from the story. We need to let ourselves be immersed into the story of Genesis. Now, we're not going to be able to do that fully today, but throughout this series, my hope is that we would allow ourselves to be immersed in the story, to ask questions, but to recognize that the author has an intention, the author has a purpose, God has a purpose in what he is communicating to us. We need to be immersed into the story of creation. See, Genesis is not a science or a history textbook. It's a story. And this doesn't mean that it is void of science or history. It just means that it should not be read as a part of that literary genre. It needs to be read differently. It's a story, and that should influence the way we understand it. Because we read stories very differently than we read textbooks and and, and news headlines. And so we need to ask at this point in the text, what is the story being told? Imagine walking in late to a movie. You've missed the first few minutes. And you sit down in the theater next to a friend and you want them to catch you up to speed. You might ask a question like, what did I miss? Hey, quickly, hey, really quick, what's going on? What what did I miss? 
And chances are the person that you came to meet at the movie is not going to lean over to you and tell you that this story was written by so-and-so and and directed by so-and-so, and and this is the costume designer, and this was uh, the casting director. These are the filming locations. They're not going to tell you all of the details of what's taking place behind the scenes of making that story. They're going to tell you who that is and what the conflict is and where this takes place. They're going to tell you information relevant to what's taking place on screen. And so we need to do that with scripture. We need to come in and ask questions about what's this about? Who is this God? What, do, what are we supposed to know? What are we supposed to learn from the information that is given to us in this story? Who are the main characters? Where does it take place? Are there any bad guys? These are the questions that we should concern ourselves with within the creation story. Now, really quickly, some of you might hear the word story and think fiction, right? But that's not what this is. See, a story is a retelling of particular events in a particular order in order to communicate an intended truth or theme. You have a story. And the way that you tell your story is going to be different based on who you're telling it to and what the intended purpose is. So think about this. Imagine the way you would tell your story to a potential employer at a job interview. There are certain aspects of your life, certain aspects of your experience that are relevant for that story. It's going to be very different than the way you tell your story to a potential romantic interest on a first date. For the love of God, make it a different story (laughs) than you would tell a potential employer. Unless that's what you're going for. I don't know. Both of those are going to be very different than the way you would tell your story in a therapist's office. For the love of God, make it different than the story you would tell in your therapist's office. That is for a later date. Let's see if it gets there. It won't if you tell it on your first date. That was for the young adults in the room. It's all true. Each story that you told is true, real events, but some of them are irrelevant based on the context. How strange would it be in a job interview if the employer was like, oh, I see in your resume that you were the director of operations at your previous firm. Um, Exactly how long was your previous romantic relationship? It's irrelevant. Tell me, Adam, when was the first time your parents really let you down? It's not important for that conversation. They may be honest curiosities. Feel free to ask them. Not if you're an employer. I'm pretty sure that's illegal to ask those questions in an interview. They may be honest curiosities. There may be answers to them. But that's not the intention of the story for that context. See what I'm saying? We have to approach Genesis in the way the author intends to tell the story. Genesis is telling a story and the story being told is intentionally crafted to bring out the elements most important to the author and to the original audience. It's not an exhaustive history or a tech manual 
trying to explain how every individual aspect of the world works. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that. And one day we'll stand before God. We'll be able to ask him any question you want. And I can't wait to hear what some of those answers are. But for now, what we have in Genesis is uniquely specific, specific for life in this world today. And so Genesis 1 through 11 is really only an introduction to the story that the author is telling. See, Genesis, we have one book in our Bibles. It's called Genesis. And after Genesis, it's Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But Genesis through Deuteronomy was originally written as one literary work. It's called the Pentateuch, which is just Greek for the five books or in Hebrew, it's called the Torah, the law. It was originally written as one book. The reason it is broken up into five is for no other reason than ancient scroll technology was not long enough for the whole story. The scrolls weren't long enough for 187 chapters, which is what the Pentateuch is. And so it was broken up into a section of five, and it's known as the Pentateuch, the five books, the books of Moses, the Torah, the law. And so Genesis, not even Genesis, but Genesis 1 through 11, and specifically Genesis 1, 1, is an introduction to that story. And so the story being told in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story, needs to be taken in context with the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch. 187 chapters, and only two of them relate to the creation story. There is a lot more that the author is trying to say, and this is just the setup. It made me think the other day about the movie Mighty Ducks, right? I loved the movie Mighty Ducks, huge hockey fan as a kid. I watched it recently with my kids, and I forgot that the first several minutes of the movie take place in a courtroom and like a legal office because Gordon Bombay is a disgraced lawyer and that's how he ends up being a hockey coach because he's doing community service. I had completely forgotten about that story. Mighty Ducks is not a courtroom drama. The Pentateuch includes aspects of the creation story, but that's not what it's about. This is the setup. This is the introduction for everything that we will learn throughout it. And so when taken in the rest of the context of Genesis and the Pentateuch, we understand that the story being told is a story about the origins of God's relationship to his people. See, Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us the origins of the world. It tells us the origins of humanity. But the grand story being told is a story about God's relationship with his people. Notice that in the Bible, from the first page to the last page, there is only one character that remains through it all. Every other character changes throughout the millennia, throughout the generations, throughout the history of the world. The characters that are carrying on the story of God continue to change, but God alone is the single character that is on every single page. This is God's story. 
This is about God's relationship to the world and God's relationship to us. And this is good news because it means that this origin story in Genesis is not just the origin story of humanity or the origin story of the world or the origin story of Adam and Eve or even the origin story of Israel, but it's your origin story. It's our story about how we exist and how we are to relate to the God who brought us into existence. And so the most important elements in all the creation account is not the details of the physical creation. We're going to talk about the details of the physical creation in future weeks. But the main point of this story, the author's primary concern is who is God? Who is this God who made the heavens and the earth? So the first sentence is not written so that we would ask about the duration of the earth, right? How long it has existed. It was written so we would ask about the causation of the earth. Who was it that brought it into existence? Why are we here? How did we get here? The main point of this story is that God is the source of creation. If you leave here today, remembering nothing else, then remember this, that God is the source of creation. That creation here is identified in Genesis 1-1 as the heavens and the earth. And both of these words are a little culturally misleading translation. See, the concept of heaven today is commonly thought of as this celestial place that you go when you die if you're good. But that's not what the word heaven originally means. The word heaven just means sky, like the heavens. But because in ancient times, People believed that their gods lived on high places like mountaintops. They were exalted over the humans. And the Israelites knew that their God was the God of gods. Their God was the one true God. He is exalted over all other gods. Then our God must live someplace higher than the mountaintops. So where do the mountaintops touch? The sky. Go out and look at the hills overlooking Carpinteria and see what they touch. They touch the heavens. So our God lives in the heavens. And so if when you die, you go to be with God and God is in the heavens, then when you die, you go to heaven. See how that cultural understanding of that word came to be how we understand the paradise, the eternal life available to us after we die through faith in Christ. So God made the sky and the earth. But even earth is a little bit misleading for us culturally because when we think of the earth, we think of a globe that revolves around the sun out in the middle of space. But that's not how the Israelites thought about the word earth. They thought the earth was a flat thing that floated on water that was held up by pillars. And so the word earth just means land. In fact, in Hebrew, haretz, the word for earth is the same word for land as in the promised land. So in Genesis, God's immediately talking about the land. In the beginning, God created the sky and the land. He created what's up there. He created what's down here and everything in between. 
And so the Hebrew people did not have a word for universe, right? Our word universe encompasses all that was made. They didn't have that word. If they wanted to encapsulate everything that God made, they would say the heavens and the earth and everything therein. So what Genesis 1.1 is saying is that in the beginning, God created all things. All things that exist were made by God in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, the universe, the sky, the ground, and everything in between. This also means that the word heaven and earth are not a distinction between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. As in heaven is everything unseen and earth is everything material that is seen. There's no distinction in the Hebrew mindset. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the universe and all of it God made to be his dwelling place. God is everywhere. So when the text says that God created the heavens and the earth, it's simply saying that all things exist because of God. There was once a time when nothing existed and now they do. And the only thing standing between non-existence and existence is God. The world exists because God wants it to exist. You exist because God wants you to exist. Our church exists because God wants our church to exist. All things exist because God wants it to exist. The only thing standing between non-existence and existence is the person of God who brings all things into being. I like this phrase that God is the source of creation better than the phrase God is creator. He is creator. The Bible clearly says that he is creator. But the reason I like source of creation better is because if God is creator, then God could have just made everything, brought it into being, and then bounced and just let it all play out. But this concept of God being the source of creation makes better sense of the biblical text because God didn't just bring it into being and then remove himself from the situation. He brought all things into existence and he keeps all things existing. See, what would happen if God were to disconnect himself from his creation? If we think of God as only the source of morality, then if God were to unplug himself from creation, we might imagine that the world would spiral into sin and violence and and hatred and all kinds of corruption. If we believe that God is uh, just a God of order, that he ordered everything and and, and keeps keeps things running, then if God were to remove himself from the equation, we might experience, you know, earthquakes and tidal waves and and global pandemics and, you know, all of these different things, any manner of chaos, right? If God to you is just a God of love, then if God were to remove himself from the equation, then love would disappear, joy would disappear, kindness would disappear, and the world would you know, spiral out into just a hopeless nothingness. But God is not merely a moral compass, and he's not merely someone who organizes and loves the world. He is the source of all things. He is the only thing standing between existence and non-existence. So if God were to unplug himself from the equation, 
everything would vanish. Think about watching a show on TV. If you were to unplug the television, the characters don't fall into moral corruption. They're gone. They are turned off. Or if you're writing a document on your computer and then the battery dies, right? The document you are writing doesn't become like some demonic manifesto because there's no more love in your computer and in the document. No, it just, it's gone. It disappears. And so this means that if God were to remove himself from the daily operations, the momentary operations of the world, all things would cease to be. So God is not only the source of all creation, he's the sustainer of creation. All things are sustained by God. Hebrews 1.3 says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. The apostle Paul affirms the Greek poets in Acts 17 when he says that in him we live and move and have our being. God is the one sustaining the world. And this is important because God didn't just create the laws of physics to govern the world so that he could kick his feet up and just let it all happen. Like I created gravity so that, you know, I can not be involved in that anymore. And the laws of thermodynamics and all of these different things. God didn't just make them to run the earth so that he can sit back. God is the laws of physics. God is what keeps everything together in an orderly functioning factor, in, a, in, a, in, the, in an organized way. Today, people want to separate science from theology, but the original audience of Genesis had no such distinction. So the ancient people believed that everything in the world was governed by fickle gods who controlled the sun and the moon and the weather and the seasons and harvest and, and planting and, 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 and reproduction and all of these things. They believed that there was a God in control of all of those things. And so the way Genesis challenges the ancient perceptions on the way the world works is not by saying, no, guys, it's not all of those gods. It's the laws of physics. No, Genesis challenges it and says, no, it has nothing to do with those other gods. The one God, the true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, he is the one who keeps all things running, who keeps all things into existence. And this is the beauty. That God is so consistent and so perfect and such a God of order that we can actually measure it. That gravity works the same way today as it will tomorrow. And the way planetary bodies orbit the sun works the same way yesterday as it does today. And the way the universe works, it operates the same way yesterday and today and tomorrow because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is intricately involved in every aspect of the world. If he was not, it's not just that planets would fly off into off their orbit. It would all go away it would all be gone. This is the way Genesis challenged the ancient peoples. And this is the way we need to allow Genesis to challenge us. This is significant because, because this is true. There is absolutely nothing natural about the natural world. Everything 
has a supernatural source and everything is sustained by a supernatural power by God. There is nothing natural in this world. Or another way to say is the most natural thing in this world is God. He's the only thing that exists apart from him. Nothing exists. We live in a supernatural world. Miracles are not when God chooses to turn off a law of physics for a moment. It's when he chooses to act for the benefit of his people in a unique way differently than he does every other moment of every other day. It's no more supernatural than every breath you take. It's a miracle that we're here today. That we woke up in the morning and on a beautiful Sunday with all the distractions available to us, you chose to put clothes on and come to church. That's a miracle. For some of you, it's a greater miracle than others. The one sitting next to you knows who you are. It's a miracle that we're here. The reason I want to emphasize this is because there are a couple of ways Christians are tempted to get this wrong. See, the ancient Israelites were tempted toward polytheism, a belief in many gods. And Genesis corrects that, says, no, this God, the God of Israel, created the heavens and the earth. But that's not our temptation today. Our temptation is not toward polytheism, believing that there's all kinds of gods in control of every aspect of of nature. Today, Christians are tempted toward atheism, a belief that God doesn't exist, or agnosticism, the belief that God can't be known. See, and Genesis corrects these thoughts as well. God does exist, and not only can he be known, he wants to be known. He has taken great lengths to allow himself to be known. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with people. Another way people are tempted to misunderstand God's presence in the world is with this new age idea that all is God. The universe is God. And so God pervades everything. And so their pantheism is what this is called, is it blurs the distinction between God and his creation, right? That now all is God. And it mistakes the creation for God. Call it the universe, call it mother nature, call it whatever you want. It's actually not new age. It's very ancient. It's old. It comes from Eastern philosophy, pantheism. It just means all is God. I knew someone who once told me that she believed that trees were divine. And she knew that that these trees were gods because anytime she was tired, she would go find a tree and she would lay down under the tree and she would drift off to sleep. And while she was asleep, her body would absorb the energy from the tree. And she knew this was happening because when she woke up, she felt refreshed. And I said, that's called taking a nap. (laughs) Naps have this incredible way of making you feel refreshed. Naps are a gift from God. Trees are a gift from God. Naps and trees are not God. We can't blur the distinction between God and his creation. And so the creation story, Genesis, 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It challenges atheism. It challenges agnosticism. It challenges polytheism and pantheism. It challenges all of these things and puts them into place because God exists. He is the source of all creation, but he is also distinct from creation. But distinct doesn't mean different. Or sorry, distinct doesn't mean distant. God is different. He's holy. He's other. He's different than us. He is distinct from us, but it doesn't mean that he's distant. And this, I think, is something that needs to be challenged in the American church today. See, I think the biggest temptation of a false view of God is not atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, polytheism, all all of these things. It's deism. Deism is the belief that God exists that he made everything and now he's no longer involved. He's distant. He's off doing other things. You can't talk to him. He doesn't care. Oftentimes in the American church, we are functional deists. We believe in God. We justify ourselves by our belief in God. We may even believe that at one time God sent his son to die for the sins of the world and through faith in Jesus, I am saved. But for my daily life, God is irrelevant. He doesn't hear me. He doesn't answer me. Why pray? And I would say this, one challenge to know whether or not you are functioning as a deist or as a Christian, is prayer. What's your prayer life like? If you're not praying, it means something is broken in your belief about whether or not God hears you or wants to answer you or is able to answer you. How many of us are living as practical deists when we have a God who is near to us a God who is the source and sustainer of our very lives. God is intimately involved in the world. And if God is at work in the world, then God is at work in your world. He didn't just make all things. He made you. And whether you see it as science or, or biology or something else, God himself is the one sustaining you. And that means he cares about you. God is, he made all things. He's intimately involved in your life. He made you and he cares about you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to call to him. He wants to answer in your life. He wants to bring good things into your world. But the best thing that he can bring into your world is himself. The greatest thing that you can receive from God is God. And that means there's no greater way to understand God's care for this world and his involvement in it than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. After God made all things and filled it with life and filled it with abundance, pain and brokenness crept into this world through sin. 
And life became a struggle. It became toil when it was intended to be abundance and joy. But God promised that one day a hero would come who would crush the head of the serpent that brought temptation and sin into the world. And he would cleanse the world of everything that defiled it. And he would live with humanity in unbroken intimacy for all of creation. He promised that that hero would come. And today we still experience the effects of sin. We still experience the pain and frustration and futility of a world that's been knocked out of alignment. And we're tempted to find that hero in ourselves. We're tempted to rise up above our circumstances or we're tempted to surround ourselves with a family or friends that love us or to find our meaning and our validity in this world through our career or through the way we spend our time in in recreation. Or sometimes we're tempted to take the edge off of life through substances and through pleasure. We're still looking for that hero, looking for money to save us, looking for power and status to save us, looking for another vacation to save us, to just get us through the next season of our careers, the next season of our toil, the next season of our struggle as human beings. We're looking for that hero, but nothing can be found to undo the chaos that sin has brought into the world and the chaos that sin brings into our lives. The shame, the guilt, the fear, the the striving after things that cannot satisfy. Nothing can be found to take the edge off completely. Nothing can be found to make you feel whole again. There may be something that you're enjoying now in this season, but someday like that iPod I bought 20 years ago, it's in a junk drawer. And the thing that might work for you right now, give it time. Nothing's permanent. But God is, and he has entered your world. It's in this realization that there's nothing we can do to set right what has gone wrong that causes us to look to God. God, I can't find my home in this world. I can't find satisfaction in this world. C.S. Lewis said that if we ever find in ourselves a desire that cannot be fulfilled in this world, that it is evidence that we were made for another world. We were made to be satisfied by something different. You were made to be satisfied by the source of creation, by the sustainer of creation. You were made to be satisfied by God alone. And so this desperation causes us not to look to the next quick fix, but to look to God, the God who made the heavens and the earth distinct, holy, sovereign. He allowed himself to take on our image, to be made in our likeness. When we were supposed to be made like him and reflect him to the world, we failed. And so God came to earth in our image. He came to earth in our likeness. Jesus is the hero this world needs. We don't need just a higher moral law to follow or or for someone to teach us about the divine spark in all of us, but to teach us that he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He lived in a perfect, faithful obedience to God and he removed the sin that separates us from our creator. This is what the gospel of John is reflecting on in the beginning when he says, in the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Word became flesh and entered into creation. The one that started outside of creation. The one that existed before creation. The one that is the source of creation, distinct from creation, but who loves creation, entered His creation, entered His creation as a human being to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to invite us into the relationship that we were made for, that we read about in Genesis 1.1, that relationship with God, that is creation is what, it's what creation is all about. It's what the story is about. Jesus came to make that possible. And so if you want to know God, if you want to know the God of creation, if you want to know how you got here, how the world got here, why you exist, if you want to know what your source in life is, what your purpose in life is, you don't need to look within. You don't need to find yourself. You need to find Jesus. You don't need to, to look to other philosophies or other, uh, you know, you just, you need some self-care, you know, whatever it is, you need to look to Jesus. If you want to know who God is, we've got a big book. This can be daunting. It can be overwhelming. But all you need today is to know that this is about Jesus. You can read about him on a page, but you can know him in your life from day to day because he is your creator. He is your sustainer. He is the lover of your souls. He is your savior. He is God. He is the creator. And you don't need to look any further than Jesus. Jesus is who the story is about. It's who creation is about. It is who your story is about. Immerse yourself into his story. Give your life to Jesus and he will bring everything into its right place. We can have questions about how it all works. And we can talk at length about how it all works. I love those conversations. I love having those conversations. All of the endless questions that we can ask. We can ask those questions, but don't miss the point. The story is not about how it all works, but about who makes it all work. And his name is Jesus. And you can know him today. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are God. You are creator, sustainer. You are the source of life. You are our source in this place. We love you. God, we got lots of questions about how it all works. But Lord, I pray that you right now would stir our hearts up to find the answers through worship, not through skepticism, not through doubt, not through science, We can ask questions. We can look to science. We can have you map it all out and make it all work in our minds scientifically. But Lord, right now, stir us up to find the answers through worship, through an actual real encounter with you. God, I pray that as your people who you love, you would meet with us right now 
that we would sense your presence by your Holy Spirit and that we can hold our questions in one hand. But Lord, we can allow ourselves to be immersed into the life of God and be, as what Peter says, partakers of the divine nature, to be caught up in intimacy with the lover of our souls. Do that in us now, Lord. Meet with us in this place and be glorified in everything we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.